0: Hello, I'm Rachel King, Associate Editor for Central Banking, and this is CB on Air. Earlier this year, Central Banking spoke with leading industry experts about the evolving payment landscape and what role Central banks should play in the future. In numerous jurisdictions, Central Banks are updating legacy payment infrastructure in both the wholesale and retail markets. In doing so, private sector companies are eager to ensure innovative products and services can be connected to new core infrastructure. I'm very pleased Somya Patnag from ACL ACI Worldwide and Liz Oakes from Mastercard are here to walk us through some of the trends and challenges we are seeing within this space. Thank you both for agreeing to share your views today.
1: Thanks Rachel, great to be here.
0: Delighted to join you Rachel. So Liz, if I could start by asking you, um, how can central banks drive usage of new payment systems?
2: So this uh, Rachel is a very loaded question. Um, my experience so far has has led me to believe that central banks typically when they embark on such a program of change they've already typically had a, a several years journey to get to that point and usually it's driven by an underlying requirement for an upgrade to the country's capability so so to put in some national infrastructure level support to drive things like digitization so to and to drive access so in the last 20 years, I think we've gone on quite a significant journey in most jurisdictions around how do we actually look at financial inclusion? How do we include more people into the banking system and how do we give them better access to the tools that many of us take for granted? And so in, in looking at you know how can a central bank drive the usage, you have to therefore say, what is it we're trying to fix? What is it we're trying to give people access to and what is it we're trying to speed up or improve in doing that? And typically there's there's an agenda. Each country ha- often has a slightly different agenda. Uh, in some countries it's about social security disbursements, for example, and we've seen that in Thailand, where the the agenda has been driven by you know, a government requirement to get people online, digital to boost the economy. And in other countries, the central bank has simply concluded that private sector involvement is not driving um, an initiative fast enough to refresh the national infrastructure, and they need to intervene to force. Uh, a a fairly sizable inorganic change in that country. Um, So in terms of then, how do central banks actually drive that usage? Therefore, you can have different threads of results. So if they're trying to um, encourage or force uh, a better access for social security, or for tax payments, or to drive digital government enablement, central banks can often um, intervene by mandating the use of those, those things. In other experiences, actually, the central bank can be a lever to involve mobile money operators or other operators in the market in a Mm -hmm. a wider discussion to promote um, a number of initiatives that they may have identified uh, to drive some outcomes that they would like to see.
0: I'm glad you've sort of touched on access there, because obviously that's sort of one of the, I guess, the biggest ways central banks can drive usage. So turning to you, Soumya, do you think institutions should be mandated to connect to new payment infrastructure by central banks? Um, Obviously, it would make sense to ensure systemically important institutions are part of that emerging core infrastructure, but I'd be interested to hear whether you think other institutions should be mandated as well. Uh, Thanks, Rachel, for the question.
1: Um, I would say central banks or or their appointed central schemes uh, do play a critical role in laying down the framework and maintaining the overall integrity in the payment system. Uh, mandating a connection isn't, uh, I would say, a one-size-fits-all approach. It it ultimately boils down to the central banks in understanding the challenges and the uh, and the market drivers, and then taking a call accordingly. Uh, I mean, we've seen both scenarios worldwide. Uh, there are markets that have mandated participation. If they if they look at markets like Brazil, where the central bank mandated uh, the connection to the PIC scheme, uh, although it did work for the market initially, where the volumes went up. uh, But if you look at the larger picture, the market is yet to come up with clear-cut use cases and uh, and you know a solution that takes care of the fraud aspect as well. This this is extremely key in a market like Brazil. Uh, In Malaysia too, there there was a centrally driven mandate for uh, all the all the banks to be a ISO 20 or 22 compliant, and Mm -hmm. B to be on a unified team connector. These played a key role in driving the transaction volumes in Malaysia. But, but what worked for Malaysia, too, was, you know, bringing in compelling use cases and value-added services on top of that, like request to pay, QR payments, direct debits. So, so mandating a connectivity might solve for the initial adoption, but the central bank should be the larger picture on what is it that the market needs and how to basically solve for it. I mean, on the other side, we, we have seen uh, most of the markets that haven't mandated participation and, and, you know, it still went on to become a success. Uh, if, you, if you look at India, for instance, when UPI was launched back in 2016, only 16 banks participated in the pilot launch. Uh, but mm-hmm. subsequently, with the aggressive push from the central bank and, uh, and the simplicity of the platform and uh, the several new use cases, Uh, now over 250 banks are connected to to the UPI scheme. So schemes can still drive adoption without uh, mandating participation. uh, would be my opinion on that.
0: And Liz, would you agree with that statement?
2: Uh, Yeah, I I think I'd unpick the question almost. So so what do you achieve by connection being made mandatory? In Singapore, when the central bank launched fast, and this is many, many years ago, uh, 2012, this whole discussion started, they told the banks to, that they had to connect. And so the banks connected. So I think 19 banks connected. They didn't necessarily make it available to their customers, uh, whether retail or wholesale. And I, I think that's you know fundamentally the question is more of what outcome do you actually want to see? And, and therefore, does making something mandatory uh, in terms of technical connectivity actually drive that outcome? And quite mm-hmm. often the answer is no. Um, we have the same outcome, probably largely in the UK, where many corporates do not have the same level of access to faster payments that you would anticipate they would have just from your experience as a consumer. Uh, and we will see the same thing in, in North America as RTP gets rolled out. And I, I think that, you know, the fundamental question there is what actually drives a better outcome? Mm. Uh, what we saw in Europe with PSD2 was that the the outcome was mandated. So the customer must have access to, in some way, shape or form, must have access to real-time funds or funds within a certain time frame. And that drove commercial offerings. And so I think we have to distinguish here that not every financial institution to start off with actually offers the types of services, potentially, that you're talking about. So, you know, building societies uh, are not the same as retail banks, are not the same as a fintech, it's not the same as an insurance company. Everyone has a slightly different business model. And so, in, you know, to, to say that mandating something is actually going to necessarily uh, be helpful, uh, in, in many cases, it floods the market with an immediate compelling event where there aren't enough consultants and there aren't enough people to actually achieve the outcome in that time timeframe anyway across that industry. And secondly, um, the investment life cycles that organizations operate to means that for many, they do need some time to figure it out. They need to figure out their own business case, their business model. What are they going to do? How are they going to survive in a new environment? How far will their digital refresh go? And what offerings can they actually bring to market that are compelling enough uh, to make money for them and to to recoup the investment? Because they do have to invest quite a sizable amount of money in many cases. So I, I think that the points that Samia made around, you know, different countries have taken different approaches is absolutely valid. And, I, I, you know, I loved her example of India, um, because India had was facing into a situation with 350 financial institutions, mm-hmm. vastly different uh, business models, customer use cases, customer types. Um, and and it, it, the team in India knew that they had to go on a journey. And they knew there would be early adopters and there will always be laggards um, and trying to shift you know an organization the size of the state bank of india onto something like upi and onto npci services in itself is a massive lift um and and so you know we see very different outcomes in different countries but i think the issue around kind of so should connection be made mandatory for me, it's less about the mandatory connection. It's more about the service offering. So customers expect a consistent outcome. So if I use that system, I want to expect to be able to reach your bank account within a certain time frame. And I want to know that if it goes wrong, uh, maybe I've keyed in the wrong uh, details or the wrong email or whatever it is that I've put in, that I have some dispute management or means of redress, or I have you know, a good customer experience. And so for me, I think the the issue is less about um, should the connection be made mandatory, more about should the experience be made mandatory? Because if you don't find a common thread with the experience, often you will lose early adopters in the consumer market, in the retail market, because they'll try it once. And if they have a bad experience, it'll take a very long time to get them to do it again. And, And so that piece, I think, gets less focus. We we do all this trial and error and um you know breaking things and fixing things. I'm not sure that consumers nowadays have very much tolerance for that anymore
0: mm. and
2: expect more.
0: I'm curious then, if we if we sort of look to the future, if central banks were to broaden access to a wider number of participants for, for core infrastructure, obviously here in the UK, non-banks and non-banks have been given access to the RTGS system. I think it was back in 2017. So, if we offer a broader range of institutions access to future payment infrastructure, do you think that would help central banks reach that goal of outcome versus mandatory um, sort of acceptance of payment systems?
2: Well, I I, I mean, I I do totally actually agree that non-bank access is critically important for the future of the payment systems. Um, but that's primarily because of the way the wholesale and retail markets are structured and the, and the way access to settlement at central banks operates. Um, so I think the idea that um, a new FinTech on the High Street uh, or you know the online would need to rely on the um, legacy infrastructure of an existing incumbent bank to be able to get access to the payment system is in itself flawed. So the idea that they can go direct onto the, the actual tech platform and participate where they may have a much uh, newer, better, uh, shinier uh, tech infrastructure, that holds water from a technology standpoint. Um, Also, commercially, why would an incumbent uh, that actually participates in the retail market want to facilitate access for a, you know, a new startup or or a new competitor into that Mm. market? Um, They may choose to do it for a number of years, but if the the new guy actually is really successful, then they've just enabled a competitor. And that and that's not a really commercially logical thing to anticipate should happen. So I don't think there's any way around the idea that actually we need to give better access to new tech, um, uh, new providers that have better technology. Um, the question around, you know, what are the the guardrails around how they operate uh, in that space, and whether they have consumer protection uh, and deposits insurance, and all those those kind of things that collateral at the central bank, those are issues for central banks to focus on in terms of the robustness and resilience of the the actual underlying system. Um, but I think broadly, um, it's a good, it's a great thing to have um, access for new participants whether that you describe them as non-banks is an interesting question because many of them start out as non-banks but over time the vast majority of them appear to either go for a lighter type of licensing which is um, Mm. payment only providers um, which means that essentially you know the main activities of banking lending and deposit taking are are with somebody else anyway or they actually go and get a banking license after a short period of time so you know time horizons in payment systems tend to be quite long, they're sort of 25 years and more. Um, and so, you know, saying that somebody's not eligible to join just because they're a non-bank right now uh, isn't going to help us with innovation. So I don't think there's any way back from that. I, I, Samya probably has a, a different perspective.
1: Yeah, I, I thanks, Liz. I think this uh, completely makes sense. And I would just want to add from a participant side of things. I would say... It's important to ensure the ecosystem is open and inclusive to both banks and non-banking participants. Uh, where when you say non-banks, it could be anyone. It could be fintechs, big techs, technology providers, e-commerce players. I mean, they should be allowed to participate, innovate, and try the end uh, user adoption. Uh, In the previous uh, podcast, Rachel, they spoke about the three layers of the payment infrastructure, which was very interesting to me. You know, the settlement layer, the clearing layer, and the topmost layer being the ecosystem layer and how crucial it is to make it open and accessible to all with the use of open APIs. So this is what we've seen in all successful real-time payment markets, Um, you know, open ecosystem use of APIs that present a much simpler easier to use interface into a payment system so participation should not be restricted to banks only but non-banks and fintechs who could you know bring in new services uh, and new capabilities into the hands of the end consumers and merchants
0: okay so if we just tilt slightly towards um onboarding processes so samia you mentioned a few jurisdictions who have just gone through a shift in payments to brazil and malaysia how would you um suggest central banks approach on the onboarding process once they've launched a new infrastructure or or processing or i guess looking to introduce new infrastructure obviously as you've said each jurisdiction will have a different approach but just from your perspective what have you seen uh yeah the participant
1: onboarding process is extremely critical to the success of any scheme and and central banks are really striving to Streamline and simplify the process for their uh, end participants, uh, because you know onboarding isn't all about connectivity to the central scheme. There are several other components alongside just connectivity. There is development, testing, certification, documentation, and a lot more. So, in my opinion, central bank should move to a more user-focused approach that would uh, make onboarding simple yet efficient. Uh, mm-hmm. If these- if you speak about the participant mix, right, it is quite diverse in most markets, like, like also Liz mentioned uh, in the previous answer. We we have seen markets like Australia, India, Brazil allow both direct and indirect participants to connect to the scheme. And these participants could range from small small mid sized to large banks. They could be uh, digital banks, neo banks, fintechs, payment service providers. Uh, in, in markets like Malaysia, even uh, merchants have direct access to the scheme. So, considering such a diverse uh, mix of participants, uh, some of them might not be as tech savvy as the larger participants. So, the central bank should look at making the process simple and, and user focused for the participants. Uh, because most of the central infrastructures like we see today in most markets are coming up with interactive portals that they could extend to their members, uh, which you know, could be used not only to self-onboard themselves, but they could configure services around, uh, say, transaction management or reporting. They, they are able to raise disputes in, in cases where schemes are governing uh, disputes. They can use it for transaction monitoring purposes. Mm-hmm. Uh, then, we've, then we've also seen a concept of regulatory sandbox that's becoming a new norm in most you know, the central banks and payment schemes are extending a uh, sandbox access to participants. Uh, it could be either existing participants or potential participants who were then able to test out capabilities and functionalities b- before even coming in for certification. So This saves in a lot of um, effort for the participants, thereby reducing their time to market. So I think uh, the the approach should be very user-focused, uh, in my mm-hmm. opinion, and, and central banks are striving to Uh, to make that happen
0: now before we end obviously it's clear from my discussion with you both today and from george and craig's discussion earlier on in this year that there are clear benefits to payment modernization but i'd like to discuss one specific payment trend which has emerged and that's qr codes so liz i'd like to start with you um how have qr codes impacted payment modernization over the last say five years
2: so i think we've been on a journey with qr codes um You know, I'd say actually two years ago before COVID uh, hit the world, um, we were kind of in a place that said, well, some parts of the world are really adopting QR codes and going full steam ahead with it. Other parts of the world, not so much. And uh, there were various discussions about, you know, standardization of QR codes, various different approaches. A lot of work was done on EMV code around uh, QR codes so that we could actually uh, have more consistency. Um, And then we had other countries going out and and inventing their own. Um, And and so, you know, there was a lot of focus on kind of standardization and questions around whether this would survive and whether it would thrive. I think what we've then seen, particularly because of uh, the pandemic, uh, you know, a desire to do everything um, contactless. So, you know, contactless card usage took off massively. contactless anything you know if you went into a restaurant you're trying to order food everything was suddenly with a qr code and i I think that um, exposure to the general people individuals have to qr codes as a a method of triggering you know a a way of doing anything um, Mm. really took off and so we've been uh working uh with a number of different organizations around the world on you know how do you therefore promote and and utilize that Familiarity and the, and the convenience that people now see with QR codes, if they have a smartphone, um, to be able to trigger payments. And and in uh, recent months, uh, we've actually started to put QR codes onto some of the issued cards in circulation. Um, mm-hmm. so that actually, you're turning. Uh, you know, every consumer can become can have an acceptance method. They can actually receive transactions to their account uh, because now they have a QR code on their card. So instead of just using it to pay out, they can actually show it to somebody and and receive funds. Um, So there are all sorts of really interesting things you can do with QR codes. Um, In in some cases, cross-border payments can be facilitated uh, because the person is quite comfortable with the fact that they're not actually disclosing their banking information um, Mm -hmm. jurisdictions where they might find that that might be a a challenge. Um, But I think that the ultimate question is (laughs) not everybody has a smartphone. Not everybody has access to that technology. Mm. So I think we have to be a little bit careful. We do, as an industry, have a tendency to introduce things that are designed for digital savvy and the latest technology. And, and notwithstanding the fact that often it takes three to five years for adoption curves to hit a point where the, you know it's a tenable idea. Actually, we, we are potentially excluding the vast majority of the people we're trying to reach. So... Mm. The jury is still out, really, as to whether or not this is the right long term answer for everybody. But I think it's clear that, you know, in many jurisdictions, it has massively had a boost from uh, COVID, uh, even in, in countries where previously we would ne- never have imagined this would have taken off. Mm. So, I'm not sure that we're entirely there yet. There are many other uh, alternate ideas. However, QR codes right now is, the, you know, probably
0: the hottest thing uh, that is making a, a change. And Samia, would you agree that that's the case? That how would you see these this payment instrument evolve? Uh, so I would completely agree that the pandemic has uh,
1: drastically increased the use of QR-based payments, and, and this is worldwide. Um, QR codes were always rampant across Asia. I mean, from QR codes in your cabs to QR codes on your restaurant bill, it it has been a very popular mode of payment since quite some time. But I think with the onset of the pandemic and the increased demand for contactless payments, QR code is becoming popular outside of Asia as well. And that's the reason we see um, central banks across markets launching their interoperable QR standards. Uh, And if if I talk about some references uh, from around the world, uh, I mean, in Singapore, we've seen a 300% jump in QR payments in in 2020. Uh, Mm -hmm. If you look at Brazil, most of the PICS uh, payments are are all uh, uh, QR code based. Uh, In India, there are two interoperable QR standards in place. uh, And in fact, the merchant fee is lower for a QR code transaction versus a card transaction. Mm -hmm. In the US, we have seen QR codes revive as a result of the pandemic, and there has been significant rise uh, in QR code-based payments. Uh, But interestingly, at ACI, when we engage with customers across markets, uh, we've also seen a QR code uh, emerge as one of the most compelling use cases uh, because of the benefits that it brings in, right? For consumers, it's fast, it's secure, brings that seamless payment experience. For merchants, it has um, a wide range of benefits, starting from lower costs to efficient rollout uh, and the fact that uh, it is interoperable uh, in most markets. Mm -hmm. Uh, Small small, uh, mom-and-pop stores could simply print a QR and display it on their counter, while large merchants have the option to generate QR code on their point-of-sale devices. Uh, you know, giving the consumers the option to pay using their mobile phones without the need to carry a debit or a credit card. So I feel that QR codes could cater to several P2P, C2B, C2, uh, C2G use cases mm-hmm. um, ar- around the world. And uh, I, we would expect more and more markets embracing QR codes, specifically after the pandemic. And it will continue to evolve
0: in Bring
1: in that seamless digital
0: experience. I think we'll have to watch this space then, and hopefully, in the next sort of 12 to 18 months, I'll be able to pay for my morning coffee with a QR code. Um, but yeah, it, it seems like the the industry is going through a huge evolution at the moment. We've got many central banks embarking on huge payment projects, um, huge RTGS renewals, retail payments overhauls. So it's an exciting time to be working in the space um, and we'll have to keep an eye on things. But thank you so much for joining me today. The discussion has been incredibly insightful and I know our audience will have um, enjoyed listening to you both. Thank you, Rachel.
1: Thank you, Rachel. Thank you, Liz.